Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of the law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD, located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. Good morning, Jason. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Good. Well, welcome to Inside Divorce. I'm going to talk to you today about some issues related to divorce and your world of criminal defense work. And uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about yourself. So we're uh, essentially two partners in a firm. There's me and attorney John Seed. And we have several offices in Massachusetts and Worcester and Boston and New Bedford. We're essentially a premier criminal defense firm that handles small cases such as underage drinking. That's We've done that a lot in Boston area. Yeah. Uh, OUI drunk driving cases all the way up to home invasions, drug trafficking, and, and murder cases. So we're pretty much a boutique criminal defense firm um, all around Massachusetts. You're the kind of lawyer that people uh, don't want to need, like me, a divorce lawyer, right? Right. You, do, you don't want to know us until you need, need us. us. Yep. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it does come up does come up. Right. And so how long have you been practicing law, Jason? So we have been practicing, this is our 13th year. Uh-huh. So both me and John were uh, former prosecutors. Yeah. And uh, we have partnered up in trying to give people the best criminal defense we can. Good. Well, it's interesting. So you have a lot of experience doing this. And so tell me how you feel about criminal defense work. <laughs> we, we enjoy it a lot. Yeah. We, we really find the cases extremely interesting. We like being in court every day. Uh, certainly never a dull moment. Uh, we've been to many police stations, up to many parking lots, waiting for courts to open. Oh, yeah. um, so it's certainly, you don't know what's going to come up on a daily basis. Yeah, That's every case is different, it. isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So there are... Um, ways in which our worlds overlap. Um, Sometimes divorce cases start, unfortunately, with restraining orders where things escalate in the marital home. And um, I know that you have represented people in restraining orders. So why don't you tell our listening audience what a restraining order is? And and it does happen a lot. So every time there's um, a domestic assault and battery type of situation, the police are essentially required to tell whoever the victim is. A lot of times it's the female in relationship um, that they can get a restraining order. Um, Restraining orders are essentially court orders. They're civil orders that allow an individual for court protection. Uh, Even though it's civil orders, the violation is a criminal offense. So there's certainly a lot of um, consequences to having these restraining orders. So a lot of times what happens is a judge will give a temporary order to an individual until there can be a two-party hearing where the defendant is also there where the plaintiff is there, who is usually the victim as part of a, a criminal case. Yeah. And there's a lot of issues that we see uh, because there's a lot of overlap when two individuals have been involved for a period of time. So um, we do certainly see a lot of issues that come up as a, rest- as a result of domestic cases, but also as a result of restraining orders themselves. So, What kind of issues are you talking about? Well, um, we see a lot of problems where there may be people who have been married who have been involved for a period of time, or even when they're not married and they have children. Uh-huh. Um, anytime there's a domestic case and a child is inside the home yeah. or a witness to a crime, DCF needs to be contacted. Yeah. So now not only do you have the DCF piece where they're going to do their own investigation, mm-hmm. you have the court piece where an individual needs to essentially deal with the criminal charges. Yeah. And then they have to deal with the divorce piece because yeah. now the restraining order might tell them they can't go back to their marital home. Yeah. Um, not only in, in LA, as you know, a lot of people work from home now. So if they can't get back to their home, it's not only just their personal lives, but a lot of time it's their business too. Yeah. So there's many layers of issues 
that an individual needs to deal with once these uh, conflicts come up to try to get their life back in order and running right. again. One thing leads to another. Absolutely. You know, when clients come here and I get the sense that there's a lot of hostility in, uh, in the house, I'm always nervous about possibility for a straining order because it throws, you know, takes a whole different track um, to a divorce right. case because right. it ends up in a dis- different court, which is a district court instead of the probate and family court, which is where the divorce takes place. And then you're working with two potentially two different court orders and transferring files and paperwork from one to the other. The district court relinquishing control of the case where the probate court takes it over. And so it's a little bit of a mess, not to mention the fact that people's lives are really disrupted. Sure, and, and so to further urgently. complicate that, yeah. it could be two different counties. Yeah. Where the incident happened may not be where they live. They may have property in other places. They may have two children yeah. that live in different places. So it does get pretty complicated pretty quickly for them, yeah. unfortunately. But And that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because district court judges in the criminal courts are very concerned about child custody. There's certainly a portion in the restraining order that talks about it. But one of the things is if the two parties aren't allowed to talk to each other, what issues does that create in probate court when you're trying to go through dividing assets or child custody issues? Uh, well, it means that the two attorneys are the only ones that can talk to one another. Um, it's It really is crazy because I know the restraining order form in the district court is basically a page and a half of check the box things, right? It's, uh, you know, you have to be within 100 yards of each other. There's a, there's a line there so the judge can write in how far the victim and the assailant have to be away from each other. It, another line that says the assailant has to stay away from, the, if, they're, if they're children, the children's school or the victim's work. And they can't communicate by phone or text or email, even you know, even though that would be safer, you know, obviously with some written communication sure. rather than in face conversation. Um, and it, it means it's impossible to co-parent. And it means it's impossible to work out the day-to-day activities of life, like who's going to pay what or who's going to take the car where or who's going to pay a bill. Um, it, it really is, is very hard. Um, and a restraining order in court means that the court that gets transferred into the you know, into the divorce case means that there's the court officer literally stands between the husband and wife during a divorce. Yes. Uh, keeps them apart, as far apart as possible in the courthouse. Even depositions become difficult because the other side can't be present in the room. Right. So, I mean, there's some logistical difficulties we have to overcome if there's a restraining order in place. And those are really owners. I don't think people realize when they make the phone call. I mean, I'm not saying the phone call for the, to the police in, when there's an incident in the house doesn't warrant a restraining order. Just sometimes a restraining order is way more excessive than it needs to be, way more punishing than it needs to be at that moment because right. it prevents all those other things from happening, not only communication, but you know, moving forward with life. Because I, I see orders with very interesting additions to them. Um, I've seen orders that a particular the def, the plaintiff wants to continue be on the insurance of the defendant, yeah, and the judge ordering that, yeah, without really any context about his job situation, how this case is going to affect his job, yeah, um, if it's even a possibility for him to continue working because now he has a pending domestic assault and battery case that he may not be eligible to con- continue his work, yeah. Um, so we definitely see a lot of interesting and creative ways that judges try to deal with it. Well, the district court judges have seemed to have a lot of latitude except on the money issues. So the, those one and a half page you know, forms are check the box. They say, you know, you can't 
You can't be in the same place together. You have to be a certain right. number of feet apart or yards apart. You can't go to the kid's school or the, or the victim's work. But it, and it says uh, there's no parenting plan typically in there. No, right. That all. doesn't address the parenting plan, so the 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 alleged assailant can't see the kids until the other court, that is the family court, the probate and family court, makes a ruling about the parenting plan, which of course has to take into consideration that there's a restraining order from the district court. And also there's no money resolution. So if the person who made the phone call for the assault doesn't have any in earnings, any income, right. there's no way to get support to run the household I unless guess, there's another court order. I guess one of the questions that I get a lot from my clients is how long does it then typically take for them to sort out the the child custody issues or the marital money or if I have to continue to pay insurance? How long does it then take to go into probate court to get an order like that? Well, first, they have to file something in the, phone, in the probate court. So that means a complaint for divorce. So one of them has to be willing to file the complaint for divorce, right? And then depending on the judge's calendar schedule, we could be three or four weeks before we can even get in oh, front wow. of a judge to address those issues. In the meantime, it's maybe bills pile up or the parent who's been excluded from the house can't even see the kids. It's terrible. And right. it could be longer because it, you know, that person now, one one of them has to hire a divorce attorney because right. the person who re represented them in the district court on the restraining order may not be the same person that handles the divorce case. So they need to find another a, a divorce attorney. They need to decide to move forward with the divorce, and then they need to get on the judge's calendar, which sometimes takes a lot longer than we'd hope. And the other issue that we see, because a lot of times there is a pending criminal case, I and mean, obviously people can get a restraining order without one, yeah. is how much information then they can share with DCF or in the divorce court, because we have a pending criminal litigation. Um, so I, I think for my clients, it really puts them in a difficult position because they certainly want to share information. Yeah. But it also, with the pending criminal case, that can certainly hurt them in criminal court. Mm. So that is always a concern of ours about how much information they are sharing with agencies or sharing during depositions in divorce court. Right. Uh, and we're hoping that we are able to resolve the divorce matter, I'm sorry, uh, resolve the uh, criminal issue yeah. prior to the divorce issue kind of pending and continuing. That's true. You don't want to, they don't want people who are accused of a criminal act to make any admissions in the context of another case that will hurt them in the criminal case. Um, have you ever seen a situation where there is a restraining order in district court, but then it is either um, terminated in probate court or completely modified in a different way? Yes, because you know what what led to the incident in the home was an escalation of an issue. And so once the husband and wife are separated or the boyfriend and girlfriend or the partners are separated, obviously you have fewer escalations. Um, so typically what happened in the first hearing in a, in a divorce matter would be called is called temporary orders. And so it would say, you know, one person lives here, another person is going to live there. And say there's a marital home and say they're married, for example, hypothetically. Sure. So, you know, one one spouse remains in the marital home. The other spouse leaves the marital home. The one who's in the marital home has what's called sole use and occupancy of it so that the other spouse can't just walk in whenever they feel like it. So it gives a, a level of protection. Right. Right. So, it, but it also makes the, the spouse who has to leave feel really kind of alienated. But but we just we try to dismiss the restraining orders at that point once the rules are in place. Right. Right. So there are boundaries that make people feel safer, and plus there's a civil kind of anti-harassment order we could put in place. Oh, okay. Um, instead of a restraining order that has criminal penalties for violating, now we can do something that's a step down, a little bit of a step down. 
So what we do is once them once they're separated, physically right. separated, everybody and things calm down a little bit. Time does seem to heal that a little bit. And also the person who has a restraining order against them and realizes they can't, you know, speak to anybody, see their kids, get back in the home. I think they usually get a taste, unless they're a chronic abuser, they usually get a pretty good taste of what the penalties are like if, if they if they act badly right. again. And then when we see people getting custody orders uh, by family court, yeah. we are seeing judges being very open to modifying their restraining orders in a way that essentially complies with it yeah. um, and allowing at least some type of communication, especially when there's children, just drop off and pick up just day-to-day basis. It's yeah. almost impossible to not speak to each other and to make sure the kids are okay. Yeah, I've seen drop-offs and pickups at police stations for the kids or in you know supermarket parking lots or other things so that there isn't a possibility of an incident at the house. Um, it's a shame for children. I mean, can you imagine right. having to go right. to a police station and what the children's view of police stations is and they're, you know, as they grow up? It's a shame that um, parents can't kind of keep it together long enough that they make a good impression on their children. And sometimes that is the safest place, as we have seen subsequent incidents occur, yeah. allegations occur, because it was happening at a grandmother's house or someone else's house that they thought was a good place to exchange. But both sides are so entrenched in their emotions that it really becomes an escalation for one reason or another. Yeah. So. And it certainly affects their parenting, you know, their ability to control their emotions. They start talking, they might talk to the kids about the other parent and that's bad. That's certainly sure. discouraged because um, that has a very negative effect on the children, you know, when one parent speaks ill of the other. We even write that into agreements that neither parent sh- will speak badly of the other. Hard to enforce, of course, because you can't ask the kids any questions. Um, but yeah, restraining orders, they said, sets the case off on a very strange path, and then unfortunate what, path. How much of the weight does a family court judge give um, where one individual is being charged with a criminal offense? in terms of parenting and custody? I think it depends on the incident um, that one parent is being accused of. It's If it's a one-off thing that escalated, I think there's a little more forgiveness and obviously a chronic pattern of abuse. Sure. Um, judges are open to hearing about verbal abuse as well as physical abuse, although physical is obviously much worse. And, um, um, and it does inform the judge about you know who they're dealing with because it's not now it's still an allegation right, right people are right. innocent until proven they're they're guilty but if there are bruises or if there's evidence physical evidence of harm and i think the judges take in the probate court take it very seriously particularly if it's in front of the children oh i see and then would it be other information come out about uncharged conduct about past type of abuse would those things also come into factor into yeah that, that hearing that i mentioned called a motion for temporary orders i mean right. the person both sides you know, both spouses can ask for temporary orders, but the one who is who claims to have been victimized might, you know, s- submit an affidavit saying that there's been a pattern of abuse in the marriage. And oh, I see. Uh, you know, that that information will likely come out in some form. In some right. form. And then we we see a lot of disagreements over individuals where sometimes both parties are charged, uh, and I'm sure yeah. that even makes the situation worse. And um, as unfortunately that what we're dealing with now, we're seeing a lot of um, drug use. And that seems to be not making situations uh, where people de-escalate emotions. It seems to kind of ramp up emotions and whatever the disagreements they have. Um, Or you see more of that, those types of concerns in a family court also, where they're possibly both people are charged? Um, No, certainly there are 
allegations going back both ways of bad behavior. I mean, we see a lot of that. You know, I, I had another case recently where the wife is accusing the husband of financial abuse, you know, not letting her buy things needed for the house. I wouldn't call it abuse necessarily right. or, you know, excessive financial control and, you know, made a big deal of that. Um, you know, so the word abuse gets thrown around a lot. Right. And I don't want to diminish. Obviously, physical abuse is horrendous. It should never happen. And emotional abuse shouldn't happen either. But when you start using that word abuse and in other ways, that makes it, it, it takes kind of, a, I don't know, it's a kind of abuse of the word abuse. Right, <laughs> right. So we, we also see that in criminal court, not only can an individual um, plaintiff take out a harassment or um, essentially a restraining order for themselves, but a lot of times they take it off for the children also. Yes. Is that something that also is taken into consideration when they go to family court? Yes. Um, although um, there is a way that judges can allow the outside parent, let's say, to see the children under supervised circumstances. I there see. are supervision centers now. I mean, oh. there have been for a while. There are places a parent can go visit with their children under supervised conditions. You know, the there's a fee for it. It's a scheduling issue because the supervision center has to be, you know, has to schedule it. I see. Um, it's not the most convenient way or the best way for a parent to visit children, but it's better to keep the parent in touch with the children under some circumstances and to be just disappear for a while. So um, that can be done. And there's also a mechanism in court where the judge can appoint a guardian ad litem, oh, okay. referred to as a GAL, and that guardian ad litem um, is paid to do an investigation of the family to determine if there's any abuse in the household or the impact on the children um, and to determine whether the children will be safe in that house and make recommendations to the judges about custody and parenting plans. And I guess the other thing is we kind of went over temporary orders a little bit. Yeah. I guess for my clients, the timelines and their biggest concerns a lot of times are their children. Yeah. How long does it typically take for them to have a final determination of custody and household type of issues? Uh, so the final is probably at least a year from the start oh, wow. of the divorce. Okay. But as I said, you can get into court on the temporary orders, which is what the judge can order while the case, divorce case is pending. So there's, you know, a person doesn't have to wait till the divorce is over to know what the outcome will be. Um, there's a temporary order that can be in place that sets forth kind of, the, I call it the new world order. It's, right. it's how they will live while the divorce is pending. You know, who will see the kids when and where and right. who will pay whom, how much money for support, who will pay the mortgage, and who will drive which car, who will carry mm. the health insurance, you know, ways that they will live. It's the new rules, basically, by which they will live while the case is pending. And is that usually similar to what the final orders will be? Often. Often. Often, okay. except it's early on before there's really been enough information exchanged. So of some of it is just we'll do the best we can right now just to put some rules in place, and then we'll exchange information over the next months. And, you know, fine-tune the resolution. So the resolution could be different and should be different because it's based on additional information. Right. The motion for temporary orders is, you know, early on in the case before you know everything. And then the final orders would be when they would know who actually gets the custody of the children yeah. for good? I mean, a parent, in order for a parent to lose legal custody, um, the behavior would have to be really egregious over a very long period of time. I don't think a one-off incident would encourage a judge to deprive a parent of legal custody. Okay. Legal, There's legal custody and there's physical custody. Oh, Le I see. Legal custody, I describe, and I know this sounds a little off-putting, but it's like who owns the children? The biological parents both own the children because they're the parents, and that's legal custody. Um, so that 
you know, legal custodians have the right to decide how the children are raised. But one parent usually has the children a little bit more, so has that little has more primary, uh, excuse me, has more physical custody. So it depends on where they live, where the kids live. Oh, I see. And that's something that's aggressively, in many cases, uh, fought over about physical custody, who has the kids more and how that will work. And you try to balance that with um, preventing the kids from going back and forth between two households too many times. Right, right. right. I mean, sometimes parents, you know, count the number of hours they're with their children so they can claim that they are the, have the majority of the of custody, the physical custody. And, you know, there's seven days in a week and it's not an even number, so you can't actually make it exactly even. Um, also, kids have schedules and activities, and so parents have to take their children to those activities or pick up after school or take doctor's appointments. So, you know, making that schedule for the children is hard. If Even if you can do it now, it's going to change when, as the children age. Of course. Right? Yeah. Their activities are going to change, and their school hours will change, and the parents' availability might change based on new jobs. Right. You know, someone may have an illness, and who stays home with the children's child that day? It's just there's a lot of opportunities for change. Hard to predict the future. So while a, a criminal case is going on, I guess sometimes my clients have the concern about what the differences would be if there was a conviction, yeah. if they resolve the case through a plea, uh -huh. and how that would be reflected upon them in probate court, yeah. um, especially when they have children. I mean, a lot of this is very children-specific. It's That's what they're concerned about the most, not yeah. so much in what's going to happen to the marital home. A lot of they have concerns of, okay, if I get convicted of this assault and battery and say if it's a a first incident that they were charged with. They don't have any criminal history. And a lot of times, if they do have a criminal history, they're not as concerned about it because yeah. there's other charges that have been they've been convicted on in the past. Yeah. But say if it's something that's brand new, they've never been charged before um, in criminal court, um, does that have a difference in terms of how a judge sees that case if they are convicted or not? I, I think... The probate court judge would have an opinion about a conviction. Um, I'm just thinking while you're talking, though, if there is both a parallel, two parallel cases going on, that is the criminal case and a divorce case, it's possible, I guess, to resolve the criminal part in the divorce part if the if the spouses can agree or the partners can agree. But then you have to go back to your court, the district court, and see if the prosecutors are willing to drop the case, right? It also right. means that the victim decides not to testify. And if the victim decides not to testify, the case kind of falls apart. Is that right? Um, that that can be true, depending yeah. on how many people are there in terms of witnesses. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times what we see is where there's a husband and wife or a, a two partners. Yeah. Um, those are generally the only two people who are there. Right. Um, and if they're married, they certainly have a marital privilege to not testify. Right. But what we're seeing more and more now is that people are cohabiting and um, have different structures in terms of family, but they have children. Yeah. So it becomes trickier because in those situations, they wouldn't have a, a right divorce. to not testify. Well, right. They, right. they don't have the marital privilege. Exactly. And they wouldn't be getting divorced. Right. Right. <laughs> right. In which case it wouldn't matter because they're not in the probate court. Well, actually, they could be in the probate court even if they're unmarried because they could have a paternity case. Right. Right. So right. there's still another avenue for it, a, another court to determine the custody of the children and the parenting for the children. So you could still go for temporary orders for that? Yes. I see. Yes. So parent, people aren't married. Obviously, they then can't divorce. But the other way of right. handling the child, the children issue and the parenting issue and the custody of the children 
is in the same court, the probate and family court. It's just called a paternity case. Oh, I see. I see. Um, and in terms of Hindel, in terms of like cases where you have same sex couples, yeah. and one, and then this actually has come up in our practice. Yeah. And one person has is the biological uh, mother or father of that child. Yes. And the other individual is not. Yes. But they've both been involved with this uh, child since they've been born. The child's probably many, many years old at this point. Um, what happens in those situations? Is there still a custody issue? Is there is there things that the non-biological parent can fight for in um, in probate court? Well, it's always best for the non-biological parent in your situation to adopt the child. Okay, I right? see. Then, then they have rights because then they're the adoptive parent. If they're not the adoptive parent, um, they don't technically have a, a lot, as many rights as the biological parent. And, but yet they're an important part of the child's life. Right. They played a part in raising that child. Um, so I'm not up on recent cases with same-sex marriages in this issue. Um, I do recall a case maybe five to ten years ago, though, where the, you know, two women raised a child together, and then they was just they they didn't marry and they split up, and the biological mother was still the biological mother, but the other person had no rights. And so it really is harsh on a family. It's fascinating. The, yeah. the, the law seems like it's ever changing, and yeah. we're starting to see more and more of these yeah. <coughs> incidents come up. Yeah. Because it's not just for domestic violence. Unfortunately, it's not just uh, individuals who are um, are just married. It's just all different types of family structures that we're yeah. seeing. That different people are getting called. The police. A lot of times, the police get called not because one of the individuals called the police. Now that's a very common way of that happening. But yeah. it could be neighbors who call. It could be a concerned parent of, um, you know, Which, the plaintiff. It could be a child who calls yeah. that thinks that there's something going on. Yeah. Um, and it escalates quickly. And they have all these questions. It's like a tinderbox in the house. I know whenever I get the sense that there's a, you know, tinderbox going on, I say, you know, I even suggest my client move out. I mean, just try to avoid the possibility of a restraining order. It's so terrible on everybody. It's tough. Uh, that's a lot of times the conversations that we have. Yeah. Is that I understand that this is your child. I understand that you want to be in this child's life, that you've been in this child's life every day since they've been born. But the best thing for you to do right now is to comply with the court order, stay away, and just let the emotions mm, just down. go calm down. Yeah. Um, but it's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking conversation for a parent. And just because a person may not be a great spouse and a great companion doesn't mean that they're not a good parent. So yeah. I think um, that's kind of a different situation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's it's tough. It's a tough conversation to have. Yeah. I've been in situations trying to get, uh, you know, the the other, if I represent the one who wants to stay in the house, of course, both usually want to stay in the marital home. But try to get the other one out to avoid conflict. It's very hard. to, And emotionally, it's hard for the person to leave. I, I understand that. And not to leave them their home, uh, the marital home, and sometimes they mistakenly believe too that they've lost the legal right to ownership of the home if they leave, right. but they do not. You know, right. they do not. Whether their name is on the deed or not, the spouse who leaves the marital home is still entitled to the value of that home. Oh, okay, so that's that good. Home. Yeah, it is. An, it's, it's it's a real fear people have that if they voluntarily leave, that they won't have rights to it anymore. Right, because sometimes it can be abrupt, and there are obviously situations that make it very difficult. Yeah. Because there's no planning involved. It just happens overnight, and yeah. they're not going back, maybe yeah. forever. 
Yeah, not to be able to have access to your, your not only your personal items, but you're right, your home office or, you know, anything, your children. Right. Yeah. And then if you don't have family nearby, you go to a hotel or something or stay in a friend's couch. It's, it's so disruptive to a person's life. And that is right? pretty common, seeing that Massachusetts yeah. is a, it seems a lot of people transplant here. Yeah. Uh, maybe we also transplant to other places also, but a lot of people will come here for college and don't know a single person yeah. and stay because they got involved with another individual and, and that's it. They stayed and they don't have anything here. Yeah. And it's kind of a sad situation, but we see that all the time. People couch surfing until they can kind of figure it out. Yeah. So it's a hard way to live. Yeah. So. All right. So in conclusion, do not be in a situation of getting a restraining order. If you can avoid it, um, the consequences of having a restraining order are big. And on one hand, it's protection against an abusive situation. But on the other hand, it's, very, very uh, burdensome and and terrible for a person who gets a restraining order against them as far as how they move forward with their lives. Sounds like it. Well, don't abuse anyone, right? <laughs> right. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah. We don't, no we abuse. We don't want to see any type of conflict in, with yeah. any individuals. Right. But. Avoid conflict. Well, Jason, thank you for coming in today. Is there anything further? That's say? it. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. And you know, I'm certainly going to be sending a lot of clients your way, unfortunately. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And then we had a lot of other topics to discuss on things that um, you and I had discussed previously on harassment orders or, you know, trends and quarries and expunging. Just quickly on expunging. How does a person maybe expunge their criminal record? Yeah, so expunging your criminal record, there's two ways of doing it or two main ways of it happening. So the one way is that you can expunge your criminal record at any time with any charge if you can prove fraud. Yeah. So if it's not you, it's somebody else. We've done it several times. I've had a, I represent a pastor who is in the South, never been to Massachusetts. Someone used his name. You can expunge it okay. record for, for any reason, any charge at any time. And then they have these other charges that if they're old and under certain criteria, you're allowed to expunge your record. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of charges that aren't allowed to be expunged. So the bottom line is you really just have to go see a lawyer to see if you would be eligible for mm -hmm. expungement. Uh, there are waiting periods for some crimes. So misdemeanors, you have to essentially wait three years. Yeah. And felonies, you have to wait seven years. Uh, but unfortunately, there's some crimes such as uh, like a drunk driving charge or a domestic assault and battery charge um, and many other charges that aren't eligible no matter how long you wait. So... It's pretty uh, nuanced in terms of what's going on. It seems like they try to do some stuff with the criminal justice reform. And there was obviously a lot of compromises in the legislature. So if you have any questions, you certainly can reach out to uh, myself or yeah. just any criminal attorney will be able to kind of walk you through it, look through your record and, yeah. and see if you'd be eligible. Yeah, I see. Okay. And by agreement, even if the two people agree that... Uh, you know, record could be expunged. It's not necessarily guarantee it will be, right? That's correct. There are just certain offenses that just are not eligible, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, how can someone reach you if they want to retain you, Jason? So you can certainly give us a call. Um, we have several offices. Um, our main phone number is 781-343-1384. And that rings on my cell phone when I'm not in the office, uh -huh. which unfortunately we're in or fortunately, we're in court almost every day. So, yeah, it's kind of um, life you have. But you can certainly give us a call and, and come in and meet us, and we're happy to go over your case with you. And what's the name of your firm again? It's Seed Chan and Associates. All so. right. Seed is S-E-E-D? That's correct. Right. So John Seed and Jason Chan and Associates. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you again. 
If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.